KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover Open Book. Open Book. I'm your host, Nina Zorano, and today my guest is Neely Tcherkovsky, award-winning poet and biographer of Ferlinghetti and Bukowski and other major U.S. 20th century poets. Neely came to the Bay Area in 1975 and has been active on the poetry scene ever since. In fact, Jack Hirschman, the poet laureate of San Francisco, said, quote, There's perhaps no poet more inventive at writing from the outside in than Neely Tcherkovsky. And once again, he takes us on a tour du monde that covers all the bases in order to reveal the whole affirming diamond that poetry itself is. Unquote. Welcome, Neely. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm very happy that you're here and that you've brought us all these wonderful poems. I wonder what poem you are going to start with. Well, I'll start with a poem called Quake, since it's in the back of all of our minds. And uh, we had the recent uh, quake in Los Angeles, which they say is sort of a prelude. Um, So this is in memory of all those earthquakes in the past and of whatever is to come. Down on the plain again. Heading over the pass, my father shifts to the right, and the rock jerks enough so that the dog growls. Nervous, he growls. The car peeks into daylight. A waitress at the Summit Cafe spills coffee on a highway patrolman's lap. The Etruscan idol falls to the concrete floor. A flood of phone calls jam the line. We go down further to the plain, to the dry, hot center of conceit, and we derive pleasure in the deepening city of the sun as the land settles. We pass the old depot and drive over a rocky hillside into the heart of the quake. It is so alive in our minds, we cherish the tremor. You just heard Neely Tchaikovsky reading his poem, Quake. Well, now I see why it is that Jack Kirschman says that you write from the outside in. I think it's because there's so much movement in the poem. And in fact, this one literally went from the outside in. (laughs) I mean, it went right into the heart of the earthquake. Well, you know, it describes... um land going from the San Gabriel Valley up to the high desert, the Mojave. And it's really a dramatic area where the rocks jut out of the San Andreas. Like It's almost like a, a giant monster with his spine jutting out, these great red rocks. And there is this Summit Cafe. When I was a kid, we'd go up from the valley into the, into the desert um, and uh, stop at this cafe. And there was the highway patrolman. And there was the, these great old-style waitresses. So that's what it evokes. Well, what other treasures do you have there? 
Well, I'll read a poem called uh, Shifting to San Francisco, a poem called It Lands In. So that is the, uh, it, it's every land in everywhere, I guess, but, but also Land's End in San Francisco, which, of course, is a famous place. And also, it, it, it's a poem, really, that kind of uh, tips off the idea that I spend a lot of my time um, driving to the ocean and, and uh, going to the nature preserve down in Montara and uh, communicating with the harbor seals. I kind of fell in love with them. And they come up on the beach and bask in the sun, and you could stand, you know, a respectable distance and watch them lounging. At Land's End, we must know what the lupin brings early in the century, or how to form words from silence within the zone where land and desire end. The power emerges, a pelican dives for his prey, on the horizon the gods assemble, we find light on the bones of love, where no voices rise. The signs go askew, rage beyond hope emerges, blind men seize power through deceit. So goes the bread, lone seal lounging belly to the sun, a sun prophet, present, ageless, waiting for the tide. The hot sand, a home within the vast house of being alone. Beautiful. Thank you. Beautiful. So we've gone from uh, the L.A. area up to the high desert. We've come down now to Land's End in San Francisco. You got it. Where do we go next? Well, here's a poem called Absence, and uh, it's about my partner who... uh, um, Let's see, he's been gone 11 days. I'm counting the days. It's two months, so I'm, they should be gone. So I'm taking it in 10-day installments and trying to live with that. Um, and so I become obsessed with the idea of absence. Now I turn over to the dead weight of slumber, old love, young mind. The wind is carving a word over our bed. I turn over to the tracks of the bear. See how clear is the print of his intricate sanity, pawing an imaginary enemy in the form that surrounds this cold room where I fear you're not being here. The night turns over to the ravine of ferns. A trickle of water tweaks the wall of black soil. I call your humor. I feel your silence. I miss your footsteps and wait until the night strangles me. Then sleep cools the shore. Now I turn over and wait. The mulberry bush lives far back in the past where we met and came to be one song of a sort. Round we go. The waves are dry. The mouth of the cave is shut. The ocean has died. There is only this hand falling. I see the foraging bear, the branches of the trees and the twigs on the path. It is cold there. The sun cannot get through. You want to touch the tallest tree and to believe not in absence, but in what lives beyond us. 
Oh, that was lovely. You just heard Neely Tchaikovsky reading one of his latest poems called Absence. Did you just, if this is the 11th day, you must have just written that. I wrote that maybe two days ago, but um, I hasten to add, Nina, I have a theory about uh, that uh, all the poems we write, they're living in our heads for... um, I was I was going to say centuries. Uh, that's being cute, but in a way they are since we were born because we always feel absence. We feel that sense of absence, um, uh, and so I'm just attaching an emotion that I feel to this present situation, and we also feel the idea of getting beyond it. We hope to get beyond it, and we do, and then we meet up with it again. Well, today you can't be lonely because today you are communicating with thousands of Northern California listeners who I know are enjoying right. this poetry as much as I am. And then there are all those across the world that are listening on their computers. Right. So uh, we're very, very well accompanied in this little tiny studio, you and I and all your wonderful poems. You got it. Okay. <laughs> I'd love to hear some more. Okay. I'll... Um I read a poem called Lorca in the Morning about one of my favorite poets, Federico Garcia Lorca. Early in the morning, Federico Garcia Lorca walks along the Bixby Canyon path to Ferlinghetti's camp with a gypsy guitar and a box of moonlight he has stored. I offer the last coffee in the pot He accepts graciously. We sit before the soon-to-deepen sun and watch old logs burn down. I turn over a log to expose the red-hot skin. It burns the soul just looking at it. There are whirls of slash and burn, ashen mask, trails of woe, branches of bad thinking and lost opportunity, clinging to the inferno I've exposed. I throw dirt on the fire when we decide to leave. The tin coffee cup goes into a soapy bowl by the cabin door. Lorca walks to Bixby Beach at my side. His guitar is now a horse prancing up and down the shore. We watch two seals out of the roof of a wave. Go back to your ocean room, I command. Go back and bring me an albatross. Bring me Treasure Island. Bring me a deeper song than the one sung by the somber sea. A deeper song, says Federico. Send me to the deeper blue. Dapple my eyes with salt and memory. Let me stay until noon. Don't send me back just yet. I'll read my Whitman Ode and my King of Harlem poem. Go back to your century of grief, Federico. Go back to your country filled with crushed desire. The flies are swarming over a mass grave. The lice are feasting behind an iron gate. Go back to sleep. Leave me alone. Great poet of Spain, I am alone. In the evening, back at camp, a new fire glows. I warm beans and fry a pork chop in deep fat. The windmill creaks. A single hummingbird glides into view and finds his palace on the air in a clearing in a deep song. You just heard 
Neil Tchaikovsky reading his poem about Federico Garcia Lorca. Uh, before you go on to the next, I'd like to talk about that one. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I I know Ferlinghetti's cabin in in Bixby. And, of course, recently there were all those fires in Big Sur, right. and we could only pray that that beautiful, beautiful area remained unburned. Do you know? I don't think it was. Yeah, I don't think it, it okay. you know, and if it had gotten in there, it's like a funnel, that canyon. It would have raced down to the ocean. Oh, good, yeah. good. And, and that, of course, is, uh, um, of course, in the 50s, it's very historic, um, um, Jack Kerouac wrote his novel Big Sur down there, his novel of darkness. And uh, when he was trying to shake alcohol, Lawrence had given him the cabin. This is this is a cabin about 200 yards from that original cabin, and it's a it's wonderful to go there because there's no electricity, no running water, as you know, and you cook out on the uh, campfire. And uh, I've been there many times alone, and uh, once or twice with Lawrence. The idea being with with Lorca is that, of course, I had his selected poems with me. So he really was with me. Oh, uh uh-huh. So he really was with you. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, that was, uh, Mm -hmm. I loved that poem very, very much. Very much. What next do you have for us? I I feel like you are, uh, I'm in a garden here, and I get my pick of all of these exquisite blooms. Well, this is a poem called, Remembrance of the Poet, and it's about Emily Dickinson, although I don't identify it, and when it's printed in my new book, it won't say Emily Dickinson. People are going to have to dig that out of the poem. There it remains, not a happy thing, joyless, in fact. The crumbling ruins of her fingers, a restless mind. How do they say it? The mind is fevered, while up on the high passes none of this matters, The mind is lost in meaningless argument. High mountain grass rushes to the mouth of the sun. A quiet kingdom beneath the rocks erupts. The poet does not understand more than she can grasp with her fingers. Her father falls off the moon, drenching in failure. A phantom mother devours the deep shadow creviced against a wall. High in the air, the unconscious mind struggles to bend by the brush. Stone speaks out of turn as a distant swathe of snow ripens against a wall of pine. A deeper snow will settle in the morning. Though gone, she will be remembered. Taken in hand, how lonely, how unloved, what moves the mountain to be there in the afternoon? A trail of leaves leads to false places, the meadow is a garage, the voices are discordant above it all, emptiness inside of it all, emptiness in the empty eye. A strand of information, ripples, defects, animosities, drums, flutes. On the top of it, deeper snow. It hardens when a tough wind learns the curve of the fingers. The poet remains. She remembers. She will fashion a means. 
oh, reader of the future of the next edition of your book, <laughs> how will you ever know that was Emily Dickinson? Well, you know, I, I, it just popped out of my head now to say it. You know, it, it just adds to, you know, the, the uh, atmosphere of the reading. But uh, I like the idea of, um, in my last book, I had a, a poem about, uh, a couple of poems about me and other poets. And, and I don't identify them. And I, to me, that's very playful. It's, a, it's a, sort of a secret joy. So, so it, it doesn't, it could be all the Emilies, which means all of us. Yes. You know, really, it's, uh, um, you know, I wouldn't want to read that poem again on a, on a stormy night playing Chopin in the background, though. <laughs> so, well, uh, I just read an article about Emily Dickinson. I think in this week's New Yorker, somebody's mm. written another new book about her. And yeah. in reading the article of a book that I will probably, about a book I'll, I may never read, I learned so much because she pointed out the use of dashes oh, yeah. in Emily Dickinson's poetry and how the people who came after her, her relatives that were cleaning up her work for publication since she was too shy or frightened to, to publish it, uh, they were trying to take out those dashes and clean it up. And the writer was saying, no, no, her power is in the dashes. And then I looked at some of the poems and I saw, well, yes, there's a great power in an Emily Dickinson pa uh, dash. And it's not like the end dash in our computers today, that extra long dash. It's an Emily Dickinson dash. It's its very own being. Yeah, yeah, I love the I love the way you put that. And of course, not only do they clean up the dashes and her topography, but they try to uh, you know there, there was a there was a sense of the of a flowery Emily uh, instead of a wild garden, which she was, and 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 really in terms of thinking, a dangerous garden because there was this deeper sense of of thinking. And there have been so many uh, texts on Emily Dickinson, and people own her, and you know that's okay, and. Uh, I think she's such a she's so large and she she's a multiplicity uh, 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 she's so many different things and uh that's what makes her great truly great yeah and so I wanted to confront her through the back door of my mind rather than write an essay on her just letting the poem come out I will say that one of the greatest essays on her is by Adrian Rich uh called Vesuvius at Home so, in other words, she's a volcano, uh -huh. uh, and she erupts in these poems, and yes, with those those great dashes. And you cho chose to place her in winter, in a New England snow. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. That adds a lot of strength to that poem. Well, she's probably sitting in her room looking out at the garden that, that in the summertime she's tending. Right. You know? So, what else is in that folder? Well, I'm looking at the Times. I've, I've got a poem that... Uh, I'd like to read called uh, Visiting the Elder Poet. Since when I was looking for KPFA just a few minutes ago, somebody said, are you, I, I said, I'm looking forward. He said, the Senior Center? And he tried to point me to it, but I said, no, KPFA. Just around the corner, he said. This is called Visiting the Elder Poet. Ninety years now, he looks ninety years like a pigeon on a pole in a prehistoric cave, he thinks ninety years like a disgorged bull in Lascaux. 
He lies in bed but springs up an old acrobat five feet four inches tall like Picasso and Stravinsky, bald with baseball cap as cover. No more wigs. They cost thousands. Bald as an eagle. Bald but busy. <clears throat> old yet able to jump from bed in a shared room so clean. No urine stained sheets. No soiled walls. Halls are spick and span. A new universe of the fragile old. Here the smell is young, like on the streets of the city. He gets up and beams. The beam and those big eyes of wonder. Even in the old days when he'd complain, even when he thought they were robbing him blind and sliding him, not recognizing his fame. He thinks of greeting us. He points to trees outside, a beautiful sight brightening his simple room. He pays no attention to the flat-screen TV in the TV room. I try to interest him in a stroll down the hallway. He diverts my attention. The outside world is strange and foreboding. An old man with a stroller shuffles past. That crazy guy keeps going to the end of the hall. Doesn't he realize there is nothing there? Says my elder poet friend. He sees out of ninety sets of eyes. He doesn't socialize. The attendant in the green smock is invading his house. He wants me to lock the door. The door will never lock, even if this is home now. I ask him to recite a poem. He reads one from 1956, written in Barcelona. His voice is strong. He reads with authority as he did in the old days. No glasses, good vision. He reads. The walls tremble. Clear, ordinary, wondrous lines about the extraordinary desire to win a prize and to have eternal love. And when he is done, we applaud the two of us who have come to visit. I tell the attendant he is a poet, a famous poet. They didn't even know. <clears throat> I tell them we will return, and when we do, can we take him out for a walk? Maybe we'll take ninety steps toward oblivion and coffee at the cafe down in the corner, across the street. When we say goodbye, the elder poet extends a warm hand, a small hand, a massive hand. It has been good of us to visit, and by the way, you should meet my mother. She looks less than forty, and she's at least one hundred and twenty years old. She has a crown of diamonds. She walks down the hallway like a queen to visit me in my room. Oh, you just heard another marvelous poem by Neely Chikovsky, and、uh, I want to say about that senior center. That、uh, you should be very proud that people thought you were going to the、uh, North Berkeley Senior Center because <laughs> it is a a haven of creativity. I've just、uh, spent some time there, and in every room there were people doing creative things as、right. a group and as a very、uh, group that treats itself treats each other very very tenderly. So I, I definitely, and you know, poetry is one of the things they do there is is write poetry, and that was a very beautiful poem. Thank you. Very Thank beautiful you. poem. That's about Harold Norris, who I first met in 1968 in Los Angeles, and was very close to over the years. And um, um, you know, it's amazing going to see somebody who stepped into a, another sense of reality. 
but when he sat there with his collected poems and chose that poem to read, it was, as I said, with such amazing authority. And then bringing back his mother to life, I thought, was was really beautiful. Yes, and he, he is, of course, a very... He was a very fine and important poet. Absolutely. So what other treasures? Well, I'll... I'll um, let's see. I'll, I'll read something from... Uh, Elegy for Bob Kaufman, um, the poem that... Maybe uh, tell listeners a little about Bob Kaufman, yeah, our younger listeners. Bob Kaufman was a, a, a black American poet born in New Orleans, Louisiana in 1927 and lived for many years in New York. He was a labor organizer. He shipped out with the Merchant Marines. He got involved with jazz um uh Coltrane and Parker those days in New York and uh moved out to San Francisco in the 50s and was uh part of the San Francisco poetry renaissance the beat generation um uh he was published a beautiful book Golden Sardine by City Lights Solitudes Crowded with Loneliness and the Ancient Rain from New Directions and a uh selected poems called Cranial Guitar and he's really, uh, one of his poems, Second April, is, as far as I'm concerned, just probably the great anthem of the Beat Generation. And it starts, Oh man, in inner basement core of me. And goes on and reads like, he wrote it like a series of jazz sessions. It's just infused with that sense of, of improvisation. And he was very important to my generation in North Beach in the 70s. He was like the, we call him the king of North Beach. Uh, just this great presence, because he gave it all the poetry. And he always signed his name, Bob Kaufman Poet. So I wrote this book, Elegy for Bob Kaufman, which was kind of a, a strange thing to do. Uh, a whole book of elegies, but when he died in the 80s, I really had to to do that. So we have time to read one, one yes, quick... Yes, we do. Okay, this is called Roots. You don't have to read it that fast. Okay. <laughs> it matters when you tear bark off a neighborhood tree, revealing gossip elegies buried beneath rubble. It matters when you pass the ghost butcher shop, dead meaty hands, the grumble of the butcher in a green smock, eyes like a pit bull's eyes, greasy mouth, howling silence. We demand another man's wrath to fall, Rain surrounded by wrecked pavilions, javelin cracked, blown through the gate by dust, the remains of one life snuffed out. We're returning to the neighborhood late morning. The police have snatched one side of Vallejo Street near the Church of St. Francis, on whose steps a statue of the saints stood until the pelicans ate the stone before sunrise. There are ponies waiting to be driven over cliffs at Land's End. It's the repetition of a hard note, a jazz clarinet affixed to American hands as landlords are consigned to South City rest homes, Haven Hill, Raven's Nest. Washington Square Park flies toward the Great Wall of China, battlements intact, hordes spin, windows shine. Scribble mercy past cigarette night. The Carrie dancers sing Italian arias. Mr. Puccini and Mr. Verdi walk into a cafe looking for beatniks and failed dreamers. They burrow into cracks. 
They inhabit lost video artists and puppeteers who perform before vanquished crowds on Broadway. The magazine racks are invaded by Asian American teenagers glued to the sex mags. A circus of performing elephants zooms over flame-flanked rooftops until the fat lady throws down the gauntlet. We are a fiery table of espresso noise and self-congratulatory fire. You just heard Neely Tcherkovsky reading his own poetry. Thank you so much, Neely. It was a pleasure both to hear your commentary and to enjoy your poems. And I hope to have you again on Open Book. Thank you so much. This is Tom Mazzolini inviting you to join me every Saturday from noon to 2 p.m. for the Blues by the Bass Show here on KPFA. I'll be playing the latest blues CD releases as well as some of the great classics. Also featured will be unique blues rarities, interviews, blues news, and musician profiles. So join me every Saturday starting at noon where we will take a journey down to the Bay of Blues right here on KPFA.